We're going to get going here today on the last half of our study on, uh, of, uh, on deliverance and defense, uh, what it, people often call uh, exorcism and spiritual warfare. Uh, I hope that you are blessed by what I teach, but I think I may teach something different than what some of you may be expecting. So we'll just see how this goes, and um, um, you can tell me later uh, what you think. There is a pastor up in northern Idaho who has written a book that I would highly recommend. You can also go online on YouTube and listen to him teach through many of the uh, chapters in his book. The book is entitled Truth or Territory. His name is Jim Osmond, and he is a, a solid uh, teacher and preacher out of northern Idaho. He pastors a church up there called the Kootenai Community Church. He's just right south of Canadian border. Beautiful, beautiful. If you've ever been to northern Idaho, it's just breathtakingly beautiful. So anyway, he, um, uh, he, is, he is one that I would highly recommend. I've read this quote to you before, but I thought it would be a good way to kind of segue back into our study. He says, one of the main problems with the modern spiritual warfare movement methodology is their view of the believer's authority in Jesus Christ. This can be seen in the New Apostolic Reformation and uh, Word of Faith, Charismatic Circles. They believe that Christ's authority translates into our authority, and because we are seated and raised with Him in the heavenly places, His authority is ours, and we are to use it in the excuse me, same way that He used His authority. So this whole idea of casting out demons and uh, spiritual warfare revolves around this idea that we have the actual authority of Christ. Now, I've kind of focused on that previously, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that other than just to simply say that is not true. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out at different times. You remember on one occasion, he sent out 70, 35 pairs of disciples. He did give them power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. When they came back, they were doing cartwheels because even the demons were sub, uh, subjected to them or subjugated to them. And you remember what Jesus said to them about that? He said, you ought to rather be rejoicing that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I'm sure that it kind of brought the party to a screeching halt. Here are these disciples, they're doing, you know, somersaults over the fact that they can cast out demons. And Jesus said, that's no big deal. The big deal is the gospel. The big deal is what I've come to do. I've come to redeem fallen humanity. The big deal is not casting out demons or healing blind eyes. The big deal is that I'm going to save people and transplant them into my eternal kingdom. That's the big deal. So throughout scripture you find even though when Jesus is working miracles, he's downplaying those miracles because uh, that is not why he came. He came in order to redeem lost humanity. He only worked the miracles to prove that he was who he claimed to be the son of God, divinity in a human form. And that's why he worked the miracles, and that's why on the day of Pentecost, Peter makes that very claim. He said, Jesus was attested to you to be who he claimed to be by the miracles he performed. But Jesus always downplayed the miracles. And if you think about it, if he really came to heal all the sick, he had a fairly unsuccessful ministry because there were lots of people he didn't heal. I mean, even when he appeared uh, at the pool where all those sick people were around the pool, remember, and the, the angel would trouble the waters, which is kind of an intriguing subject all in and of itself. 
And then the first one who got into the water would be healed. As far as we know, scripturally, he heals one person there, one. And that place was, was surrounded by sick people. Obviously, Jesus' primary mission was not to come working miracles. He can work miracles because he created everything around us. So opening blind eyes or straightening crooked limbs is no big feat for the God who spoke it all into existence, right? But that's not the point. The point is not healing or miracles or casting out demons. Remember that the ministry of Jesus and the apostles was unique. Now, I know we've already covered this, but it's been a few weeks. Their ministry was very unique. Common believers did not work miracles. Miracles, in spite of what you'll be led to believe by modern word of faith preachers, were not commonplace. Uh, The sign gifts were performed only by the apostles or a close associate of the apostles. Uh, Exorcisms were performed by the apostle uh, or close associates of the apostles. Uh, Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas are the notable exceptions. Uh, Everyone who had the power to exorcise demons also had the power to heal the sick and raise the dead. I don't notice people today like Bob Larson who claimed to be able to cast out demons raising dead people. And yet in scripture, all of those gifts came together in a package called the sign gifts. Not every Christian performed an exorcism. You'd be led to believe today that all of us ought to be going out all the time just casting demons out left and right. And healing people every time we come across somebody that's sick. Just pray over them and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And you do all this stuff. That, that was not going on. Miracles, again, were not commonplace. Being like Jesus is not doing exactly what Jesus did. In fact, Scripture says that being like Jesus is primarily emulating His character, His attitude. To prove that, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 tell us that let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. And then Paul goes on to say He humbled Himself even to the point of dying on the cross for us. That's the mind of Christ, not uh, performing every miracle that you can possibly think of. And then, of course, Peter says the same thing, that Christ has left us an example that we should follow as he suffered, so we should be willing to. And there's another thing that we need to remember about the book of Acts. The book of Acts covers a period of 30 years. A period of 30 years. It it wasn't just a bunch of activity going on in a period of, of three or four weeks. You're often led to believe that all of this stuff was just happening every other day and and it's just all these miracles. That is not what was going on. As far as we know, there are only four exorcisms that occurred in that 30-year period of time and all of those were done at the hands of the apostles in their ministry. In 30 years. Well, that's a far cry from what we're led to believe today. All right, so... At the very end of the last lesson, I believe it was two weeks ago, I don't know how long, it may have been two months ago, but but the last time I was with you, uh, we ended with this. The word demon appears in the Gospels 67 times, the Epistle 7 times, Revelation 3 times. Now I want you to notice the shift. The word demon appears 67 times in the Gospels. Now notice when you get to the Epistles, 7 times. Basically one-tenth. Does does that say anything to anybody? The words evil or unclean spirit appear in the Gospels 23 times 
Acts 13 times, the epistles 3 times, and Revelation 3 times. For a total of 90 times in the Gospels, 13 times in Acts, 10 times in the epistles. Of the 119 times these words appear in the New Testament, 103 are in the historical section. Now, if you remember what the historical section is, is the Gospels and the book of Acts. That's the historical part of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament is what we call the epistles. Remember, the epistles are the books written to tell New Testament Christians how to live and the New Testament church how to function. The historical part says this is what happened at this period of time. Well, the historical part is not necessarily what's going to be happening in the epistle part. In fact, as you can see, it isn't. 103 of the 119 times that the words demon, unclean spirit, evil spirit appear, 87% of them appear in the Gospels or the book of Acts. Now, who were the primary figures operating the kingdom of God in the Gospels and the book of Acts? Jesus and the apostles. This is why the majority of times that the Bible mentions exorcism, demonic possession, demonic activity are in the Gospels and the book of Acts. One other thing I want to remind you of that we've talked about previously, and that is... I believe the reason that demonic activity was so rampant during the period of time that the Gospels occurred and then, of course, were recorded later uh, by the apostles is because the Son of God was walking the planet. And the demons knew why He was here. The devil knew why He was here. And their job one was to take Him out. To take Him out before he could do what he came to do. Now, how he was going to do it, they didn't quite understand. This is why their rage in wanting to destroy Jesus and get him hung up on a cross actually worked against them and in favor of God's plan. The great uh, shell game that God played is amazing that the demons fell for. But they did want to take him out. They did not want him to establish nor to advance his kingdom work. So this is why there was so much demonic activity. And I believe that until the very last days, there probably will never again be any greater demonic activity or the same until we get to the very last days that I believe are the last half of the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half of those final seven years. And that's because the Bible says that by then the devil will know that his time is very short. So you read about all of these demons doing all this stuff in the book of Revelation. You see these angels, the holy angels, the faithful angels, very active carrying out these judgments. Okay, then everything ramps back up. But in this period of time that we call the New Testament church era, I don't think that we're going to see demonic activity of the like that is recorded in the Gospels. Now, it appears to me that as we get closer and closer to that period of time, demonic activity is ticking up. Do you happen to notice what's going on? Right. And the book of Romans warns us, in essence, about that. Even though the book of Romans in chapter 1 doesn't get into demonic activity and demon possession, it does warn us of the consequences of a culture that turns its back on God and worships the creation more than the Creator and flips everything upside down. 
You know, and, and three times God says, I gave them over to it. I just turned them over to it. So the Bible warns us about this. So we are headed into what I believe to be uh, a, an increased period of uh, demonic activity. So um, uh, just, just know that this is why that was going on in the book of uh, uh, well, in, in the Gospels and then the book of Acts. So it's just important. And, and those who try to conflate the period of the epistles with the book of Acts and the Gospels make a grave error, a, a grave, grave error, both in, in, the, in the teaching of spiritual warfare and exorcism, but also in the use of spiritual gifts. They're very mistaken on a number of the spiritual gifts and has created, I believe, the three-ring circus that you see going on today in what I would call popular Christianity, meaning that which is on television, radio. The majority of the preachers and ministries that are on television and radio today aren't worth tuning into. They're crazy town. I'm telling you, the stuff that's going on is just nuts. Have you ever watched any footage of when Rodney Howard Brown, who pastors over in Tampa Bay, Florida, had that anointing of laughter? Have any of you ever seen footage of that? That is the craziest stuff you'll ever watch in your whole life. I've never seen anything like it. It is nuts. There is something supernatural about it, all right? I will admit that. But it's the opposite side from the one that we had want. It's just nuts. And then this anointing of gold that they had where they claimed that God would, would cause gold to form in their hair and uh, put gold teeth in their mouths. Well, first of all, if God's going to fix my tooth, I want it white. I don't want a big old yellow tooth. You got, you know, big old yellow shiner, right? I mean, you know, thanks, God. I do it white. But they had all this gold stuff, and they, they, they claimed to sweat gold. And, all. and then they, they took some of it and did some scientific analysis, and it was gold glitter. I mean, you know, it's just, just nuts. I believe a lot of that has to do with the m- mistaken notion that you're going to replicate the Gospels and the book of Acts in the epistle period of the New Testament. And it's it just not. I'm just telling you, it's not. And I think it's created tremendous shallowness in the church, uh, especially in America. Just horribly shallow. And, and I, for those of you who are in the other service, I, I, I kind of touched on that in, in the message. Because today we have people that don't believe the Bible is enough. And so they, they, they seek all of these other revelations and you can't know whether these are from God or not because how could you, how could you qualify whether this is really God speaking? And you know, these people rattling off in these other languages and they claim it's a heavenly language. Well, then how do you know what in the world they're saying? Well, you don't and you can't know because how could you interpret a heavenly language? We don't know what that language is. If, and, and of course, there's not even anything in scripture that talks about a heavenly language. The languages talked about in scripture that are translated tongues were known languages of that time it would be like if if doc jumped up here and started giving his testimony in german well unless we speak german he's not going to make a bit of sense to me except that if he's never studied german it's obvious that god has miraculously given him the ability to speak german which what i would assume then indicate that god wants him to go witness to people who speak german right 
And the only way then that his testimony in German would make any sense at all is if Penny here couldn't speak German, but she could understand it. So she could interpret it. So she says, well, I know exactly what Doc just said, and I'm going to interpret it for you. He said this, this, and this, and she puts it back into English. But you see, we wouldn't have to trust them. Because all we'd have to do is get someone in here who knows German, and they could evaluate whether or not he was really speaking German, and if he really said what Penny said he said. So you could validate whether or not this was from God. So what do they come up with? A heavenly language. That way there's no dictionary. You can't verify whether what they said was God or not. And if you can't verify it, I typically assume it's not. It's not. How can you verify? So all these, all these messages, all these visions, all these dreams, how do you verify any of this? You don't. You say, well, now, Dan, are you saying that these people aren't sincere Christians? No, I'm not saying that. Not at all. I have some close, close friends who have kind of gotten caught up into this kind of stuff. But what I am telling you is that you cannot verify that any of this stuff is from God. Now, I can turn you to a passage of Scripture and read this, and I can tell you God said that. But I can't tell you whether or not God said this or God said that and no, have, have no way of verifying. And by the way, this has always been the breeding ground for false teaching. Joseph Smith claimed that an angel named Moroni appeared to him and told him about these secret tablets that were buried in the northeast part of the United States of America. And if you'd go dig those up, there's a special message from Jesus when he visited all the native tribes that were living in North America. And there's a whole New Testament, and it's become the Book of Mormon. All of this out of this vision that a 16-year-old guy named Joseph Smith had. And now you have Mormonism sweeping the globe, teaching a false gospel, because it's a false Christ. Because the Christ of Mormonism is the spirit brother of Lucifer, who was created by God, who is not the creator, but the created. And the idea that God is not the only God, that you can become a God, and that God lives on a planet, and that he has all this harem of wives. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. So, this is why all of this is so critical. Now, let's go to the, the new outline and begin the new part of this lesson. So, understanding all of that, my first question is, should exorcism be a normal experience in the Christian's experience? Well, I'm just going to tell you right now, no. No, I don't believe it should be. Now, does that mean that people aren't demonically possessed? No, it doesn't mean that. I think people are possessed today. I think I've been around some people who are possessed. Typically, they're called deacons. And, and I, have been, I, ha, I, I have been around demonically possessed people. So I'm not saying that there's not demonic possession. Do I not believe that God could free them from their demon? Of course He could. But remember early on in our beginning of this study, and if you weren't here, you'll need to go back and, and listen to the lesson. I think I made a pretty substantial argument that Christians cannot be demonically possessed. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are purchased by the Lord. You are owned by Him. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I don't even believe Christians can be demonically possessed. 
Now, maybe oppressed, because Paul does warn us, don't give place to the devil, but not possessed. So you don't have to cast demons out of Christians because they can't be possessed. They're already possessed by the Spirit of God. Well, it doesn't do any good to cast demons out of an unsaved person because Jesus tells the story of a man that had a demon in him and the demon somehow gets run out and the demon goes out and finds seven other demons worse than himself and gets them to come back with him and they repossess that guy and he's in worse shape then than he was when he only had the one demon in him. So it doesn't do any good to cast demons out of unbelievers because the demons will just come back. They have no defense. So the whole idea of going around casting out demons is really immaterial. You can't cast a demon out of a Christian because they can't have a demon in them. And an unsafe person, there's no need in casting the demon out of them if they have a demon because the demon will just come right back because there's no resistance. So let's look at some scripture here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Peter is talking about false teachers and he gives some of the characteristics of false teachers. And he says, while they promise them, meaning their hearers, liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Now the point I want to focus on here is that He's talking about these false teachers and he says they make all these wild promises and they promise that they're going to set people free when really all they're doing is further entangling them in spiritual bondage. I believe that a lot of folks today who are caught up in all of this hyper-spiritualism, all of this demonic possession, casting out demons, um, sensational sign gifts and all this kind of stuff, visions, dreams, special words from God. I honestly believe that these people are more in bondage, are more enslaved now than they were before they ever got into that. Because it blinds them from just going straight to God's Word. It blinds them from the ability to just be a regular, born-again, effective Christian in a world that desperately needs the gospel. The world doesn't need a miracle. If miracles would have caused people to become believers, then everybody that came into contact with Jesus' ministry would have become immediately a believer. But when you read the Gospels, which I know many of you have, you discover that the more miracles he worked, the more circus atmosphere it created. And that's why many times he would downplay the miracles and would intentionally not work miracles because it became a diversion to his real mission. The same is true for the early church. God did not intend to create a three-ring circus so that people would come to watch the show. The only hope for anyone is the gospel, if they're unsaved, and then the living out of the gospel, if they are saved. It's not about visions and dreams and miracles and casting out demons. And so these people put folks in bondage And then you read the story of some guys who were itinerant exorcists in Acts chapter 19. You remember they were the sons of Sceva. And they go out deciding they're going to cast out a few demons. And they go to a local demoniac and they decide that they're going to work him over. We're going to bind these demons. 
And that guy jumps on them and beats them so brutally that he knocks them out of their wranglers and they crawl out of there wounded and naked. Now let me tell you, when somebody gives you a beating so much that you're beat out of your wranglers or your Levi's, you got a beating, I'm telling you right now. And those guys crawl out of there. Look, they fled out of that house. Very last line, naked and wounded. They got them a real heavy dose of what it means to go toe-to-toe, mano-a-mano with the devil. This idea that we're walking around and we're supposed to be taking authority over this and taking, that's not found in Scripture. Now, does that mean that we're just little, little whiny Christians that are at the, the whims of the devil and we just do the very best that we can to kind of scratch out our Christian existence? No, of course not. But this is not about us going around declaring how victorious we are. It's all about us promoting the gospel so that the victory of Christ can be experienced in people's lives. And that sets people free. The way to get the demon out of an unsafe person is to get Christ into them. You get the Holy Spirit into an unsafe person, he'll run those demons out. And they can't come back. Because now the Spirit of God lives there. So if you want to cast out demons, win people to Christ. You'll get rid of a lot of demons. So, I do not believe that exorcism is a normal experience. Now, could it happen? Yes. Does it sometimes legitimately happen? Probably so. We'll talk about that later. The New Testament is very interesting. Now, when I say the New Testament, what I'm talking about is post-Book of Acts. Okay, after the book of Acts, remember Acts and the Gospels are the historical part of the New Testament. But once you get past Acts, you have the beginning of the epistles, the letters of Paul and Peter and John. And those letters are written to tell us how to live for Christ and how to function in the church of Christ. Okay, now notice in the New Testament, there's absolutely no instructions as to how to cast out a demon. I challenge you to find, starting at the book of Romans all the way through the book of Revelation, a detailed set of instructions as to how to get rid of a demon. How do you set up the room? Do you get holy water? Do you beat the demon-possessed person in the head with a King James Bible that weighs 35 pounds? What, 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 what incantations do you use? Uh, what clothing do you wear? Do you, do you do, take a crucifix and stick it to their forehead? And if it burns a, you know, a, a, a blister, then, I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious. What I'm telling you is the New Testament says nothing about how to get rid of demons. Now, if our job was to go around casting out demons, don't you think... That Paul, or James, or Peter, or John, who wrote the New Testament, would have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, Oh, by the way, one of your primary tasks is to cast demons out of people, and here's how you do that. Because I can tell you that everything we're supposed to be doing, the, the epistles tell us how to do it. Here's how you do the Lord's Supper. Here's what you shouldn't do at the Lord's Supper. Here's how you take up offerings among the believers. Here's when you ought to meet together as believers. You have all this stuff. Here's, here's the people that are qualified to be pastors. Here's the people that are qualified to be deacons. Here's how you ought to treat elders. Here's how you ought to do it if somebody brings an accusation against an elder. I mean, we know all of these things. But the New Testament says nothing about how to get rid of demons. And by the way, you know this 
But I want to remind you of it. The early Gentile Christians were almost all being saved out of demonism. They were all worshiping demons. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul dedicates that entire chapter to meat that has been offered to demon idols and how these young Christians saved out of that didn't think Christians ought to be eating that demonic meat. Paul says, there's nothing wrong with that meat. You pray over it, God sanctifies it with prayer, eat it. But don't do it in the presence of these brand new Christians that have just been saved out of that demonism because it confuses them. Now you would think with all of these converts coming out of demonic worship that Paul would have said, here's how you get rid of demons because we've got a bunch of them here. Not a word. Not a word. If casting out demons is a primary work of the Lord, why didn't he cast the demons out of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Think about that. I mean, isn't it pretty obvious that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were demonically possessed? I think that's a safe call. Jesus, as far as I know, never cast the demons out of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But if that's the primary role of the, of, of the Christian, why didn't he do that? Why didn't he just say to those Pharisees, well, you guys are obviously just possessed and, and just get the demons out of there. What about those Sadducees? Or just get the demons out of there. He didn't do that. In fact, Jesus didn't even go out demon hunting. The people that he cast demons out of came to him asking for help. He wasn't a demon hunter. And yet if you listen to guys like Bob Larson, and I keep using his name because he's one of the more popular ones today. There are many others. He has all these programs about casting out demons and he interviews people that are possessed and he, he talks to the demon in the person and all this kind of stuff and does all these incantations and these people will speak in these weird voices. And I'm not saying that these people are not possessed. They probably are. But how does Bob Larson know how to get rid of a demon? You know what his answer is? The demons told him. Now some of you have already heard me say that. I want you to think about that. Demons are the servants of the father of lies, Satan himself. And we think that if we ask a demon how to cast out demons, he's going to tell us the truth. And why in the world would a demon tell you how to get rid of him? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And yet, Barb Larson claims that the reason he knows how to get rid of demons is the demons told him how to do it. That is the, the, the fallacy of what's going on today. How can we know if an exorcism is real or demonic deception? How could I know? Let's say that we've got a person in the room and they appear to be demonically possessed. And so we go through the rigmarole, we make it up, because you have to make it up. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us what to do, so you've got to make it up. So you go through whatever it is that you've made up, or you, you, you take Bob Larson's advice or whatever, and then supposedly this demon leaves this person. What if the demon's just playing with us? What if we didn't cast the demon out at all, but he's just yanking on our chain? Keeping us all chasing all this stuff and all confused and, and immersed in all this nonsense. So we won't do what really needs to happen. That person needs to be one to Christ. See, that person needs the gospel. And as long as the demons can keep us demon chasing, we're so wrapped up in that that we neglect to do 
what really is the only solution. And I'm convinced that that's why a lot of this goes on. And then we must evaluate everything by Scripture, not Scripture by everything. And that's so important. And I, I know I've said that before. And I, but everything must be evaluated by God's Word, not the other way around. We don't take our experiences and then use those to understand the Bible. No, 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 no. You use the Bible to understand your experience. But today, the Christian church has it upside down. We have it backwards, and we are paying, I believe, a very high price for being so unbiblical and so drawn to the supernatural and to those things that seem to be so sensational that we're neglecting to do the only thing that will redeem people, the only thing that will free us from bondage. And that's the truth in God's Word. The gospel, that's what sets men free. And we'll get further into this, so I kind of get in the cart before the horse sometimes. But I just think it's so important. Okay, number two on your outline. Well, then what is spiritual warfare? Dan, are you telling me that we shouldn't ever cast out a demon? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we can't cast a demon out of someone. I'm simply saying that the New Testament is totally silent on this whole idea. Paul not one time talks about going around casting out demons. Now the book of Acts tells us that there were a few times when they did that. But nothing about how to do it. Nothing. So whatever I would tell you is the proper way to get rid of a demon, I would have to literally, as I said a while ago, make it up. Because the New Testament says nothing about it. Well, I'm a little concerned about getting that involved in something that I don't know anything about and have no scripture to use as my basis for telling you how to do this. So what is spiritual warfare? Well, I believe in a word. It's a battle over truth, not territory. And I'm using that from Jim Osman, the pastor that I mentioned the very first. This is a battle over truth. Unfortunately for many Christians today, they see it as a battle over territory. They're fighting to take territory. But Scripture is constantly focused on a battle for truth. It's the territory of men's minds and hearts that the Bible says is the real battlefield. Not some claiming territory in in the name of Christ. Look at John 16, 13. However, and I read this in the sermon today, so if you were there, you, you heard it. If you're going to be there in the second service, you'll hear it again. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Notice what he's going to guide you into. Truth. This is a battle for truth. Notice today what our great battle is in our culture today. Is our great fight against homosexuality or against lesbianism? That's not really the fight. That's a symptom. Is our fight against Marxism really? Is our fight uh, against whatever kind of liberal thought you can imagine, whether it's, it's uh, you know, forced vaccinations or shots or whatever it is. No, our real fight is over truth. You see, all of these other things are symptoms of a refusal to embrace the truth. If you go to Romans chapter 1, the Bible says the reason that homosexuality and lesbianism prevail in some cultures is because they've rejected the truth. It's always about truth. 
It's not about the demon of homosexuality. It's not about the demon of lesbianism. It's not about the demon of greed. But today, this is what you'll hear in in the mainstream uh, uh, Christian world, especially on television and radio, you'll hear about the demon of lust. You'll hear about the demon of greed. I don't find the demon of lust talked about in Scripture. Oh, there's lust, yes. But I don't read about the demon of homosexuality. I read about the sin of homosexuality. I read about the sin of lying. I don't read about the demon of lying. Why do you think that the devil would want us to focus on the demon of stealing? The demon of lying. The demon of adultery. Why do you think, can you come up with any reason why you think that the devil would want us to focus on the demon of those things? It absolves us of the guilt. We can just say, look, the reason I'm having a problem with alcohol is because I've got the demon of alcoholism. I need somebody to get rid of this demon and I'll be okay. No, what you need to do is to repent and stop drinking. I've got this demon of lust and I need somebody to get rid of this demon. No, what you have is lust and what you need to do is repent and get your heart right and focus your thoughts. But you see, if you can blame it on a demon, then it's not you. You just unfortunately have the demon of alcoholism. And somebody that's strong enough can get rid of that demon and you've whipped alcoholism. That's not what scripture teaches. But that's what we're being taught. So the spirit of God is the spirit of truth. And he will guide us into truth. Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly against demons, casting them out every opportunity you get, and work as many miracles as you can. Is that what he says? No, obviously he doesn't. He says, I found it necessary to exhort you to do what? Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. What is the faith? What is that? It's the gospel. Now, the gospel is more than John 3.16, certainly. But it's the gospel. It's the redemption and regeneration that comes in Christ and the disciplined, godly lifestyle that is produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's the faith. The faith is not about how many miracles I can perform or how many sensational experiences I can have. That's not the faith. And notice when Jude writes this, he first says, I wanted to write to you about our common, what? Exorcism. Our common miracle workers. No, our common salvation. It's always about salvation. And then he said, so I I found it necessary to, to tell you to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, let me tell you, friends, in this day in which we live, we need to contend for the faith. There are people who are now being asked to betray their own religious convictions, to take some shot that may or may not be effective, only time will tell, but even if it is effective, should the government have the power to force you to take that shot, even if it's the best kind of inoculation they've ever come up with, should they have the right to force you to do that? The answer is no. Well, what about your business? Should they have the right 
to force you to take that shot. Well, here's the thing. If they have the right to do that, what if they start to say, well, here, all of our employees have to drive a Prius. And if you don't drive a Prius, well, you can't work for Mercy Hospital. Can't you use the same line of reasoning to make that demand of your employees? Because it saves the uh, climate after all. You see, there's no end to this. Well, this is all a battle for the mind and the thoughts of people. This whole thing is a contention over truth. Whose truth will prevail? The homosexuals say we're the same as you, so we're born-again homosexuals. The lesbians say we're the same as you, we're born-again lesbians. The transgender people say we're the same as you, we've just switched genders and we've now chosen between the 60 to 90 of the different gender choices that we had, but we're the same as you, and so we're saved, we're just, we've, we've switched gender. Is that what Scripture teaches? So this is a battle for truth. When people are talking about spiritual warfare, if they're talking about it from a biblical perspective, it's not about fighting demons. Paul not one time says, guys, pray up each morning and then go out and start fighting demons, punch them in the nose, poke them in the eye, kick the devil in the knee, do whatever you can. He didn't say that ever. But what he does say is that we need to grow in faith and the knowledge of the Lord and reflect that by the fruit of the Spirit which was produced in us. He does say that. But see, that's not as sensational. That's not as juicy. You say, oh, that's what he said. That's what you're teaching? Well, I already knew that. Right, but are we doing that? Notice how far more ready people are to learn how to cast out demons and work miracles than they are to live their lives in such a way that the fruit of the Spirit is produced in them. That's why we are so preoccupied with these things. Let's go to one more and then we'll stop. Number three. But aren't we at war against the devil and his demons? If you listen to the average Christian today, they'll tell you, we're at war with the devil. We're at war with the demons. Well, Paul does, I mean, excuse me, Peter does say in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, that Satan, like a roaring lion, roams around seeking whom he may devour. That is true. He is our enemy. But does the Bible say that our job as Christians is to go attack the devil and go demon hunting? Is that what the job of the believer is? Well, how did Jesus handle the devil? Because the Lord, even though he's in a human body, could have just told the devil where to go and given him two black eyes and for the fun of it, kicked him in the, in the, in the crotch. I mean, he could have done all that and just had a lot of fun with it. I mean, couldn't he? I mean, you hear these Christians talking. They're always binding the devil and rebuking the devil. And I'm going to poke him in the lip and give him a black eye. And I'm going to do all that. I'm going to give the devil the what for. Man, I'm going to work him over. What did Jesus do every time in what we call the temptation? Jesus was never tempted. But we know the wilderness experience. Three different times the devil offered him something to get Jesus to operate apart from God's will. And how did Jesus fight the devil every time? Quoting the word of God. Every time. Every time. Jesus didn't say, well, you dirty devil, let's just have an arm wrestling contest. I'm going to show you who's boss here. He didn't do that. 
He quoted God's word every time. And in verse 11, the Bible says, Then the devil left him, and angels came and ministered to him. I would submit to you that we're not at war with Satan and the demons. And if we are, we lose. I am not capable of going up against Satan. I am not capable of outperforming demons. Now, I'm saying this with a little left in this lesson, but I'm telling you, the Bible makes it quite clear that even Michael the archangel, and we've looked at this previously, didn't even rebuke the devil. He didn't believe he had the authority to rebuke Satan, and he asked God to rebuke him. Now, if Michael the archangel did not believe he had the authority to rebuke the devil, I do. You say, well, you have Christ in you. Yes, but I'm not Christ. And by the way, Jesus used Scripture. Because this is a battle for truth. This is not war on Satan. Jesus won that war. The devil's defeated. He's going down. It's just a matter of time. Our job is to win men and women to Christ and to disciple them so that they can reflect the glory of God and do the same in their own lives. That's the battle. The battle is a war for truth, not territory. So I want to stop right there. That's probably not a good place to stop, but it's all the time I have. So let's stop right there. We'll pick it up next time, and I want to build some further uh, defense of what I'm teaching here. And uh, don't give up on me. Stick with me. If this wasn't exactly what you had hoped for, well, maybe I'll cause you to think differently than what you were when you came in. All right? God bless you all. We'll pick this up next Sunday. Hang on to those outlines. We'll have a little break here, and then we'll have worship service in about 10 minutes.